1: I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on press box Access. Art Spander's career as a sports writer began before I was born. I'm 57. Think about that. He's a legend in the Bay Area and in the sports media business, An artist still writing. His delightful personality has lit up press boxes and media rooms around the world for more than six decades. Name a major sporting moment since 1960, and Art was probably there. And if he was there, he has a story. Oh, Art has quite a few for us. Now, if we only had a bottle of wine. Hey, Art, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. It's quite an honor. A few writers can match your career experiences. I think you began in your native Los Angeles in 1960 and moved up to San Francisco in 65, and you've been a Bay Area institution ever since. Uh, when people say to you, 60 years in sports writing, what do you tell them?
0: I say, it I couldn't be. That's, <laughs> that, you start covering, it's funny, you, you cover guys and they're young, then you, then you cover their their uh, grandfathers. I mean, <laughs> it just, it just where, is it, where does it all go? When you're a kid, you hear your parents and grandparents talking about time. And, and uh, uh, Einstein said, describe, they asked him to describe the theory of relativity. And he said, 60 sec. excuse me, 60 seconds with a pretty girl seems like 10. And ten seconds on a hot stove seems like sixty, and that's and that's relativity. That's was Einstein's, and <laughs> and, and 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 it's funny because when you're in high school, say getting seventy-eight, you're eighteen. Seventy-eight seems forever. When you're seventy-eight, and I'm past that, well, that was yesterday, and yeah. and that and so yeah, a lot of time, a lot of sports, a lot of people. It's been great. My my late friend John Madden uh, said, and I got to know him because of the the Oakland connection and everything, John said, I never worked a day in my life. And sometimes even though when things got really tough and and gritty and, and miserable and things went wrong, I still think that way.
1: Will Rogers said, the older we get, the fewer things seem worth waiting in line for. And yet you're <laughs> still waiting in line at media entrances, at stadiums and big events, still writing, I love it, artspander.com, after all those years at the Chronicle and the Examiner in San Francisco. You know, what keeps you writing, Art? Uh, th-
0: what, what else am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> that's That's the deal.
1: Well, I love the fact that you're still riding. You were over at Wimbledon and the British Open just this past summer. You've got many, many streaks and major events that you've covered that we're going to talk about. Think about it. You came from the early 60s at UPI in Los Angeles. You know, you were working a night shift, and then they would send you out to do a Lakers game,
0: and they paid you like $5 a game, right? That's right. That was a lot of money in 1960. The, the Lakers moved there uh, 60-60. 59, 60, I believe it was. And uh, nobody went to games. And, uh, you know, once again, I bought a Volkswagen. I think it cost $1,700. Now they cost what, 27,000? So, I mean, that will give you a little bit of a, a sense of relativity of, of what cost and payment was. What was a
1: Lakers game like in 1960 in Los Angeles?
0: Uh, to a mostly empty, uh, arena at the sports arena, right next to the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. And what the the Lakers caught on, I believe it was their fourth, third, third or fourth year, uh, third year, uh, I'm, I'm sure on the, on the years, but, but they, they, uh, were in the playoffs and they played the St. Louis Hawks. And of course the Hawks were to move eventually and, uh, they had a great playoff, and it really turned LA on, and people got excited about pro basketball. But LA was never a basketball town or city; it was an outdoor city, and and that's why you had so many baseball players from California. You could play ball basically all year round, right? And uh, and it was, so we went out. We you know we used to surf <laughs> in in the fall, and. Uh, I went to UCLA and it was right near the ocean. We run down and grab a a little surfing there when I was 18 or 19, 20. And so you didn't think indoors. And there were Mm -hmm. no no large arenas in LA. The Pan Pacific Auditorium, where they had ice skating and and, uh, they played some basketball. And the Shrine Auditorium, where they had uh, operas and stuff like that, plays. Uh, they were the basketball arenas, and then UCLA started getting good, and UCLA had to play its games. They had a, a what, twenty five hundred seat uh, arena. They call like it like a gymnasium. Sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. UCLA gym, and uh, and and when they got good, they started playing at Venice High School because that was <laughs> a large, larger <laughs> arena, and it. And, so, it was it was crazy, and uh, obviously. Once the Lakers got good and UCLA got good, and then they started building arenas all over the place. Right,
1: right. Well, you went off to San Francisco in 65 where you spent the rest of your career. And like I mentioned, you're still writing. I I look back at your career and all the different things that you covered. And I think about the way you write. And I think you once said, I don't kiss their ass. (laughs) And <laughs> I was going to ask you about this because uh, there's a record that you once set in 1973. You said that in a span of five days, you had three different athletes want to kill you. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> let's go through.
1: Let's go through the hit list here. I think we okay. had golfer Ken Still at the PGA Championship
0: driving range. What happened? Ah. Uh, he, he was mad us. Uh, obviously, everybody who doesn't like a story gets angry. And right. sometimes yeah. it passes, and sometimes they take it seriously. And Ken still, I come, I haven't seen him for a while. I come to the PGA in Cleveland, and he says, he picks up a five iron, I think it was, waves it at me and says, I ought to kill you. I can't remember exactly what the story was about. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> did he swing it? <laughs> no, he didn't. Okay, all right. I, I've had a lot of threats. And and <laughs> the, and then that, that same weekend, the 49ers were playing an exhibition game. They used to call them exhibition games. Now mm-hmm. they're pre preseason games. And I had been, I was a, a multi-purpose in those days. I was the golf writer. I was a the backup 49er writer. And I did all kinds of things, which I loved. There were like nine or
1: 10 Art Spanders running around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I would sometimes write two or three stories for the Chronicle <laughs> and they, they'd use different bylines.
1: So, <laughs> and got, all right, all right, so it, Ken Still wants to kill you with a five iron. You yeah. go to the Niners preseason game and, and Ken Willard, the running back, what does he say to you?
0: Well, he's mad at me because I had called his home he was holding out, and I had gotten his mother on the phone, and his mother says, He's not here. And I hear Ken in the background say, Tell him, <laughs> tell him I'm not here. Anyway, so I wrote that. And so I see him after this exhibition game, and he's angry. He takes his helmet bar and sticks it right up under my nose and said, I didn't say that. I said, Yes, you did. He said, you're a bad guy and a liar. I said I may be a bad guy. I'm not a liar. I quoted. <laughs> I quoted you verbatim. Now, now this was the the okay. They played the the game was I think a uh, Sunday night. Yeah, in in Cleveland. In, mm-hmm. in, yeah, in Cleveland. And uh, and then the, uh, also multi purpose. Oh, you're back there. There's a Raider game. So I had gone. Raider practice earlier up at Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. That uh, and, and and here's George Blanda, who's what 800 years old. But he's, <laughs> Wait, I love this. I love Art Spander
1: calling somebody 800 years old. This is awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he was older than uh, I was in those days. Anyway, great. but but he he was great kicker, and he didn't he didn't he wasn't playing football. He would sit around the. Uh, the swimming pool and he would kick a few. And anyway, we, we get to this exhibition game and they're playing the uh, the Patriots. And it's the old Schaefer Stadium where you walked up either side, outside, mm-hmm. and you went into the inside. So now he misses an a, a field goal that would have won the game. This is once a game, once again, exhibition, or preseason, and I had written <laughs> I had written George Blanda warming up by sitting around the pool, so <laughs> he misses the extra point or a field goal, so he's angry and he he wants to hit me and he he didn't. So that was all <laughs> the same week in 1973.
1: One week, five days, three different athletes want to kill
0: you, Art, and some of them <laughs> over the years say. Darn it, why didn't they catch you? <laughs> hey, let's let the record show how tall were you, Art,
1: back in the back in your prime days. You're five 5'8". Five, eight. Eight? Yeah. I mean, yeah so in your I, prime, how much did you weigh? Five eight, what? 150, 145, hundred and fifty. And you got guys trying to kill you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. That's that's all right. They they never But Like did. you said, like you said, you didn't kiss their ass, right? Well, and another a great thing is you're, you see them years later, they're your pal because they just remember the good times. And oh, that's, that's what memory does. That's yeah. what, that's right. And that's what sports was. Right. Well, let's
1: remember some good times. You got so many of them throughout your career. Just give me the numbers. I'm going to rattle off a few major events. Give me how many times you've covered that event. Okay. Masters.
0: Uh, 54 straight until COVID. Now I've done 55 but 54 in a row. U.S. Open golf. Uh, I've done, starting in 1966, when I was a a rookie and the Open was here, I've covered all but two. Excuse me. British Open. uh, British Open, I've covered about 25 to 30. Wimbledon. Wimbledon, I've covered in the 30s. U.S. Open tennis. Uh, U.S. Open tennis, not as many I think uh, 25 or so, I started covering tennis because I went to the British Open and I said, hey, they got this tennis tournament here. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, why don't I cover both of them? Hey, I can, I, stay,
1: I can stay in Europe a few more weeks on the That's, dime, on the per diem. So, and then we're going to talk more about this, but how many Rose Bowls? Uh 60, let's
0: see, 67... I've gone to 67 in a row in the Rose Bowl. I did not go to the one in Texas two years ago or a year and a half ago, but I went to every one from 1954 when I started as a program salesman and until uh, a year ago, 2000, what is it, 20? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Right. Uh, uh, yeah, that one. So I went to every one and then I didn't go to the one that was in, in down at Jerry's World because- That didn't they, count. That's Well, that's what everybody's telling me, so. You can't see the San Gabriel Mountains in Texas. That's, that, that, <laughs>
1: that, that, <laughs> that's true. So, so dozens and dozens and dozens of these major events. Do you have a favorite, a favorite moment, a favorite event, game, that still all these years later is with you?
0: Uh, two things. One, I was at the- 1980 Winter Olympics, and I saw the United States defeat the Soviet Union. And it was so emotional. The miracle on ice, right? That's right. American luck. And, and I got to, over the years, even I knew him before that, Al Michaels and I, and our wives are friends because the LA connection. And, uh, and, you know, basically, he came up with the perfect analogy there and that great thinking, and do and, uh, you believe in miracles? Those are the things, obviously, those are the things that make our business. I, I've, I've talked to younger guys, and they're sitting, we're sitting at the Super Bowl, and I've done uh, 40, 45 or something Super Bowls, and they'll say, oh, this is, and they're like overworked, and I said, if you are covering sports, and you don't want to be at the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Masters or the British Open or whatever, then you're in the wrong business. Right, Why, right. why are you there if you don't want to do the big uh, big events? Okay, you're there for the miracle
1: on ice. Put us in the arena. What was it like that day?
0: Well, Dave, Dave Israel, who's still around, was running up and back in the press section saying all the rules against cheering in the press box are off. So <laughs> I, I still remember that. Anyway, it was fantastic. And uh, I guess when it's happening, you're not as, as, as cognizant as you are 10 years or even a month or a week or down the line. Joe Montana to Dwight Clark. And it just changed the Bay Area psychologically. Could never win... Could never beat LA could never beat the Cowboys and boom one play changed everything when
1: you when you think about the game obviously the catch but what about the game itself as it unfolded in, in candlestick
0: it was it was uh, the week before they had played the New York Giants and it was raining and uh, not very much not very much fun and uh, <laughs> I I I gave the grounds crew a nickname, the Sod Squad, and they didn't like it, because because so candlestick, <laughs> candlestick was terrible. It was on, uh, along the shore, and the and it was poorly kept. It, yeah, this is just a little uh, trivia. The Oakland Coliseum across the bay was underwater. When I say underwater, below water level, but they had pumps running. 24 hours a day mm-hmm. to, to keep it clear and keep it clean but the cause the <laughs> candlestick which was on an elevated area uh, above the bay but this field itself was was in soggy ground and so the game against uh, the, the the giants the week before there was turf everywhere flying right. And I, that's where I got them, the sod squad. They sent me, <laughs> they didn't like it. They sent me a bucket of manure. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey. anyway. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I could not put it next to my trophies. Oh, anyway. Okay.
1: All right. But, but the game itself, I mean, it comes down to, obviously, one of the most famous plays in football history, the catch. But, you know, you got Dallas, America's team. They're at the end of their dynasty of the 70s, basically. And, you know, upstart Niners with this young Joe Montana and Bill Walsh as the coach. It's a real street fight of a game, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, and everybody, uh, a lot of people forget, after the catch, Dallas got the ball and had the ball. And then the 49ers stopped them. I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember, was it Interception? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, people forget. But, but the thing is, it's just like the emotions of the Bay Area, and, and you know, it's funny, because when people think of San Francisco, and and I've traveled uh, enough, people don't think of, of let's say, Pittsburgh, uh, the, the Steelers. But but you th- when you think of San Francisco, you think of of wine, you think of food, you think of the Bay, and the the sports fans get frustrated or got frustrated. And Mm. so it all changed that day. And then of course they went on to win several Super Bowls and Walsh, I went out in the field doing interviews (laughs) and Walsh sees me and he says, you can't write, we can't win the big one anymore. And he's the guy, quote, never read the papers. So oh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was as happy
1: with you as the manure guys. <laughs> yeah. Not Bill was okay. Bill was okay. Hey, you, hey, you know what else you know what else people forget about the catch? About that game? Montana threw three
0: interceptions in that game. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But the the play he had to make, and of course he made Dwight it. <laughs> Dwight Clark unfortunately died yeah. from uh Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, that also, when that happens, when, when people, young people relatively, who you've seen perform over the years, when something happens to them, it's like that makes you realize how fast time passes.
1: Right. Yeah, it certainly does. And a tragic uh, ending to Dwight's life. And But, you know, always etched in NFL lore with the uh, amazing play, The Catch. Okay, you were there for The Catch. You mentioned the Super Bowl, which the Niners obviously went on to win many times. What the hell happened at the 2017 Super Bowl? That season, Art, with Kyle Shanahan's backpack.
0: <laughs> this is funny. Um, they had the... Uh, that was uh maybe the first time they had the the media day at night, and so I flew in it was at houston and and they were having they were having the uh the press conferences at the uh astros bar a ball, uh, ballpark and so I get there i'm 'm I'm late it 's dark, and i everybody knows that Shanahan is going to become the 49ers coach, uh, as soon as the Super Bowl's over, right. and he's the offensive coordinator for the Falcons. Anyway, so I run in there. I have a backpack. As ever, I started. I used to use a Rolly. I'm back to the Rolly now. But I, I, I used to. The backpack was convenient, and we're we're sitting right on the edge of a bullpen. Like I, the. The third best bullpen, and and uh, we're, we're we're sitting on the on the wood on the little banister area. And anyway, so I I I'm trying to move in close and get Shanahan get quotes because that's the only story that really matters in the mm-hmm. Bay Area at a Super Bowl for two other teams. Right. Anyway, I then grab the backpack and walk away after the interview and it turns out I have Shanahan's backpack. We have the exact same backpack, a green <laughs> and and now all of a sudden I people from the Falcons are all looking for me. Well wait Order. a
1: minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Shanahan backpack has $18,000 worth of Super Bowl tickets and the Falcons game plan
0: yeah, the game plan. He, took, he told me later it didn't bother him. The tickets bothered me. Well, well, if the I game
1: mean, plan was for the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl, you know, yeah, it's probably good that you took it. That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so now uh, people track me down. Oh yeah, I get a phone call from uh, Jared Bell of USA Today. Art, where are you? I'm right, right here. You, you have Shanahan's backpack. I do. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so. Now, it, it, you you've been to Super Bowls. Nothing yes. nothing happens until the game. But there's a lot of so, this becomes cause celeb. Right. Wow. And and everybody they're interviewing me and I want to interview people. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and, and and then I was also writing for Newsday and Newsday said, "Do a story about this." Anyway, <laughs> it, and became infamous. <laughs> When 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 Shanahan when they won the uh, was it a uh, year later or so when they went to the Super Bowl uh, they 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 won the uh, NFC Championship I passed him I said you're gonna bring your backpack he said I'm not gonna let you have it <laughs> so,
1: so. <laughs> well it's a it's part of a Super Bowl uh, history now you know. Uh- All right, Art, you mentioned the Rose Bowl, and I want to talk to you specifically about that major event. Uh, You were inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame, the class of 2016. And as you mentioned, the first time you ever went to the Rose Bowl as a Los Angeles native was 1954. You were age 15, and you actually sold game programs. And I think for about 10 years, you went as a fan, a spectator. And then you started covering it in 1964, and you really never stopped covering it. What is it about the Rose Bowl that kept bringing you back to Pasadena?
0: Well, one, I, I was an L.A. native, and there weren't, I'm refer, referencing what I mentioned, there weren't any, any sports arenas in L.A. There weren't a lot of sports. You had minor league baseball, and you had college football. You had the Rams who came mm-hmm. there. But- the big event was the Rose Bowl. And the LA Times in those days would put out special editions. And also, there were very few ball games. There, were the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, and the Orange Bowl. That was it. Right. And the Rose Bowl was the big one. Now there are what, 200? <laughs> it's, it's amazing.
1: You know, I was fortunate to cover the Rose Bowl several times, and I have distinct memories of my first, 1990, Bo Schembechler's last game at Michigan as coach, and USC beat him. You have covered so many. Are there certain games and distinct moments that that you have in all those years of covering the Rose Bowl?
0: Well, I went to UCLA, and when UCLA finally won a Rose Bowl, 1966, Gary Beban, I remember that game. I also remember... The, the Ron Vanderkellen game. Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin. The lighting was very poor. The game went on and on and on. It was virtual darkness. And the game, game changed. Uh, I believe it was against SC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think and, so. And SC had big lead in Wisconsin. And Vanderkellen, the quarterback, kept bringing him back. And that was a historic game.
1: But it's more than just the football, right? It's something about the setting, the Rose Bowl. For somebody who's never been fortunate enough to go to the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day, what is it like to be in that stadium and cover that game?
0: Well, one, you better get there early because the traffic is terrible. And a lot of people are coming from the parade. The parade draws a million people, maybe a million and a half. And a lot of people go to the, particularly from out of town, from Ohio or Michigan, uh, Northwestern, they'll go to the parade. It's their one chance, they'll go to the game. So those are the people down, that
1: Jim Murray used to write, we're all bringing a potato salad to Southern California.
0: <laughs> and Murray, every time, <laughs> every time, and, and I got to be great friends with Jim, and, and he and I both have eye problems or had eye problems. But Jim, every time yeah. it'd be one of those great days where it was about 70 degrees, and the sun was out, and Jim would say, "Oh no, another thousand, ten thousand people will be coming to California." He wanted <laughs> bad weather,
1: <laughs> but there is something about that sunset, right? That setting oh, yeah, and yeah. the game.
0: Yeah, it's just it's just watching the sunset uh, over the the hills to the uh, to the west of you. Now, from the road, from the press box, you just see part of it, but. You get the, it's everything sort of turning purple, and the game is going on, and it just it just you know. I, so once I got involved, I wanted to keep going, and I, I sort of like, hey, I'm going to do this next year anyway. I sold programs, and then I went to UCLA, and I they asked me if I'd work in the press box, and I sort of passed out stats. Remember mm-hmm. stats. Yeah. They, they were on paper. They, now they're all... Uh, anyway. Remember paper? People yeah. cut down
1: trees and make paper. And,
0: and, then, and then, uh, uh, then, I, then I, when I graduated and I went to UPI, they let me work in the press box and then I started covering when I got to Santa Monica Outlook. And mm-hmm. basically there and then the Chronicle and the Examiner and even though I wasn't assigned, I went... On, one game, I wanted to go, and I was the Raiders beat writer, and they were playing Denver and Denver. And But fortunately, the game was, New Year's was on Sunday, so the Rose Bowl was going to be on Monday. So I cover the, the Raider game, and I jump on a plane and fly to L.A. and do the Rose Bowl, and my boss at the Chronicle is outraged. Why? Why did you do this? How come? You're supposed to be at the the Raiders. I said, I was at the Raiders anyway. So he never, (laughs) I said, I got to keep my streak
1: going, right? Yeah, you had to, right? Yeah. Well, in all seriousness, you know, the streak is really legendary among sports writers. And and you're in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame for a reason. I mean, you're part of what that game became in American sports lore.
0: Well, you know, I call it an odometer award because I didn't play, but it was really... It was really amazing. In the parade, with the, sitting in the, one of those old cars, 1923, 1925, whatever it was, with a couple of guys who actually earned the right by playing in the game. So I, I, I sort of felt awkward because I'm used to covering things and not covering the story and not being mm. the story. Right. And, uh, but it, it was great. I, got, I look over here uh, to the side and there's a, a big statue, and I, I remember, hey, I was there. I, right. I was, I, and and my name uh, is on a plaque on the wall, a Hall of Fame, which, you know, I have grandkids now, and I think someday they may take a look at that.
1: Well, let's talk some more football here. Let's go to the pro ranks. In San Francisco, when you are at the Chronicle and at the Examiner, before you became a columnist, you actually covered the NFL as a beat, and you were covering... The Raiders, the 1970s Raiders of Al Davis, John Madden, and a host of Cretans and Miscreants and former inmates and all kinds of people playing on that team. What were the 1970s Raiders like in Oakland?
0: Uh, First place, they owned the town. And uh, people loved them. They were good. Secondly is it was very relaxed atmosphere, you know, these days, when you go to do an interview, the PR people say, two more minutes, uh, we got to get going. In those days, Al Davis would say, go interview the guy, and if he won't talk to you, that's your problem. So I loved it. And, and once I said, Madden was the great guy. Bill Walsh said he never read the papers, but Madden read the papers and would take them, and I'd come to practice, and he'd say, I didn't say that. And he hold the paper up on my face. <laughs> and, well, Madden and, uh, is a
1: guy that ever, you know most people now know Madden, obviously because of his tremendous broadcasting career. But I mean, he was a hell of a coach for 10 years with the Raiders, You know, won a yeah. Super Bowl and had so many yeah. great teams. What, what was he like to cover as a coach?
0: Very, very accessible. And as I, as I mentioned, he said, I never worked a day in my life. Uh, but basically he appreciated... What he could do, which was uh, get involved in a game, and mm. he he was a great coach, and he had a lot of fun. and And Al Davis, who had whose reputation, unfortunately, got worse. But Al Al knew football, and he knew people uh, who could coach and who could play, uh, and and so they were they were a fun team. <laughs>
1: All right, we've heard all these tales about some of the hijinks among the players. Give us your favorite Raiders story.
0: Um, let's see. Well, the, in, the, in the, uh, the Super Bowl, I think it was around 80 or so, 83. Yeah. Okay, so they're
1: playing. It's the Eagles and the Raiders in the Super Bowl in New Orleans, of all places. Yes. <laughs> Every yeah, sporting and- event should be held in New Orleans. <laughs> so you're there. Uh, what was going on with the Raiders that week?
0: The Raiders never went to bed and 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 Vermeil <laughs> been a very tight ship we had you know for the uh, Eagles, hours. yeah, with yeah, the Eagles and the Raiders meanwhile um, uh, been, 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 I'm trying to remember Bandisack and and uh, a few of the other guys they just went out on their own. there were no uh, there were rules they they just broke them, and it didn't matter as long as that was a deal with Al Davis he said. I, I don't have uh, hard and fast rules. I just want the guys ready to play football and not a bad idea.
1: Right, right. Matuzak was quite a character, right?
0: Oh, yeah, he was the twos, they call him, T-O-O-Z. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was a guy, uh, had been in other teams and, uh, and he, he never went to bed during the Super Bowl. <laughs> Before that Super
1: Bowl in the '70s, the quarterback was Ken Stabler, who was always a favorite <laughs> player of mine uh, back in those days. Uh, tell us about Stabler and what he was like to cover.
0: Uh, Stabler was a guy that's I sort of got involved with him. I was writing the Raiders, and uh, he wanted a, he wanted to play, and he wasn't playing. And so I go to see him, and the Raiders weren't scoring, and. He, he tells me, I can get this team. Daryl LaMonica was the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And he says, I can get touchdowns. And the, the Chronicle ran the headline, I can get TDs. Um,
1: Stabler.
0: Stabler. And, right. and and Al Davis, or Madden Davis, they didn't care. They thought, that's great. Uh, go get those TDs. And, that's what we and want he, from the
1: quarterback, right? Leadership, that's, that's yeah. A,
0: that's right. Confidence. And, and, and that's right. And that's what he got. And, uh, I mean, he was a guy. He died uh, a couple of years ago, but he, he had a wild life, too. He, mm-hmm. these, guys, these guys just, they enjoyed themselves. The whole key was play the game, and as soon as the game's over, have a good time. Was training camp a pretty, uh, pretty wild affair? <laughs> well, this is... 120, the Raiders wouldn't tell you anything, so you had to find out for yourself. So yeah, we're, we're staying reporting, up, Art, come on. <laughs> yeah, we're staying up there at the El Rancho Hotel in Santa Rosa, and, and uh, we're, we're in one section, the players are in another, and one of the guys bangs on my door and said, you better get up, they just cut somebody, whoever it was. So we're all running out in our underwear, <laughs> in our pajamas to find out who cut, so we could write a story. <laughs> another thing, another thing. And I'm I married, and I wear my wedding ring. But guys would get up there, and they take off their wedding rings. So, <laughs> so then a they Raiders could go tradition. Up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go
1: from the Raiders back to college real quick, because you mentioned this, and I and I have not spoken to anybody who was actually at this game. That's November 20th, 1982. Now, you covered pretty much every Cal-Stanford game since 1968. Yes. You've seen them all. There's never been a game like that in that series and really never been a game end in the history of college football quite like that Cal-Stanford game, the famous, the bands on the field game. Joe, Joe Where, were you, Art? Where were you, Art, when the Stanford band took the field during that kick return?
0: I was in the press box. In other words, we would go down after the game. Okay, but, so
1: you weren't down on the field. Okay,
0: no, I was in the press box watching it, and and it's like Joe Starkey, who's just retiring, he was the announcer um, who said the band is on the field, and it's <laughs> like it's like what you know. I didn't hear that because I'm in the press box, but it, you're, you're seeing this unfolding, and it's hard to to put it into your brain. What's going on down there? Uh, another thing I remember that was John Elway's last college game, right? And he was going to go to the Rose Bowl, and they got knocked out, and he was outraged. He would he wouldn't talk about the play for years. Really? Finally, finally, uh, about ten years later, he I talked to him, and he said, Ah, oh, yeah, I, I've I've come, I've I've adjusted, but. He was so angry. They, Cal, the, the Stanford people thought they had won. And, you uh, know, the laterals, were, there were forward laterals. And yeah. uh, Ken Moan, uh, it's got, the, also what's great is the guy, the trombone player who ran on the field.
1: Yeah, Kevin Moan I mean, scores a TD after five yeah, laterals yeah. by the Cal Bears. Moan runs in, it into the end zone and just runs over this trombone player. <laughs>
0: And and Ben's the the trombone player and the runner, the Cal runner, are good friends. They became longtime friends. The trombone, <laughs> the trombone is in the College Hall of Fame, I believe. All bent up, and it's obviously once once in a lifetime. People, you've seen teams try to duplicate that, where they just throw the ball around. Didn't work. It works there, and and they play it on TV here. Uh, just about every time Cal plays Stanford, which right. is once a year.
1: I mean, we've seen the video clips all these years, but what was it like in the stadium and in the press box when it was unfolding?
0: Well, it's like, what's going on? Everybody's, they're screaming, ah, ooh, ah. And now you don't know if it's a touch. There was a, a long break while they're trying to figure out if he actually scored a touchdown mm-hmm. and was legitimate. And so that takes time. And and finally, they, the guy goes, lifts his hands, touchdown. And the uh, the Cal people are, are delighted it's at Cal. They've had some crazy games. Oh, well, you know, Stanford, well,
1: they'll get over it eventually. <laughs> it's, only been, <laughs> it's only been 40 yeah. years. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Stanford, there was a guy who played a little bit of golf out there at Stanford in the Bay Area. And um, you got to know him a little bit as a young California amateur, US Open amateur champion, three times. uh, Goes on to Stanford where you really get to know this guy. His name is Eldrick Woods. I think he goes by Tiger. What was the young Tiger Woods like um, as an amateur and and during his time at Stanford?
0: He's always been very, uh, you might say, reluctant or hesitant, he never wanted to make a big deal. He knew wh- who he was and his father pushed him. When he got, when he got to Stanford, they used to call him Urkel. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the TV yeah. character with the big he glasses. Is, he was sort yeah. of out of it. He played golf and he went to class and he, he wasn't one of the guys that ran up and down the dorm wall, uh, hallways, that type of thing. But uh, mm-hmm. even later on, I got to know him a little bit and interviewed him, and I asked him uh, about doing things. And he said, basically, he wanted to do it his own way, in his father's way, and he didn't want what other people wanted. What is your first memory of Tiger? Well, I, I, I met him at a, at a banquet when a Stanford uh, and. You know he was he was really uh, uh, really hesitant and a little shy. Uh, once again, uh, they introduced him. Yeah, Woods. He had already won a U.S. amateur. You know, he won, as you mentioned, he won three U.S. amateurs. Nobody else ever did that. Not Bobby Jones, right. not Jack Nicklaus, not Arnold Palmer, anybody. And uh, and so that he was on his way still winning and I, I saw the third amateur was played up at portland um or outside a pumpkin ridge yeah, right yeah right outside of portland and uh <laughs> something i remember played a guy named steve scott in the finals so i uh, um tiger is down five holes it's it's match play he's five down to to Steve Scott, I go on the radio to uh, Station KMVR, which is the sports station, one of the two sports stations here, and I go on mm-hmm. at, at, the, at the break uh, when they're, they're waiting to play the afternoon, and I said basically it's all over, Tiger's way behind, he's gonna lose, and, and of course he came back and won. So that, I learned something there.
1: So he makes history as the first and only person to win three straight U.S. Amateur Championships. You had covered golf at that point already for many, many years, including Nicholas in his prime. When you looked at that young Tiger Woods who was getting ready to turn pro, did you envision that he would become what he did become?
0: No, you don't know. Well, we knew he was going to be very good. And, and uh, he had the, the continual success... Indicated that out there he would win. Uh, I was at the Masters, uh, as a men has been all these Masters, when he broke through and won. Uh, 1997. Yeah, 1997, and all of a sudden, boom, that changed golf. But going back a couple of years, his father, Earl, used to both build them up and knock them down. And this was at the U.S. Open at Uh, a limp uh, in Detroit and Tiger was an amateur and he was playing and he's Mm -hmm. playing pretty well. And then he started playing, you know, not quite so well and didn't look like he was going to make the cut. And Earl would say, oh, he's not very good. And he's got to learn a lot. I remember that Earl was like downgrading him. And and of course Mm. that was right into the media right there. But outside, he, he built them up. And, uh, and Tiger, hey, Tiger did what nobody's done. And, uh, but, but he, he's won, he's won, he has not won uh, all four, all four majors in the same year. Nobody has. Hogan did it. Hogan did it. Tiger won three. So that's, that's pretty good. So ninety-seven
1: at the Masters, he wins by twelve strokes. You said it changed golf. What do you remember about being in Augusta that year in particular?
0: Um, we we didn't know. In other words, at 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 36 holes, there was no indication that this was gonna happen. But he wins and 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 all of a sudden it brings in minorities, it makes people pay attention. Um you know, who is this guy? Uh Tiger Woods and basically brought so many people, both uh, um, minorities into the game, but it made made people pay attention. I I would go to golf tournaments and at the USO, excuse me, the LA Open or the Genesis, whatever it was, and you'd have all these uh, black kids following Tiger and they would Mm -hmm. not have been on a golf course had
1: he not won. Right. He also just brought in the general sports fan, right? Because golf is, you know, it's kind of a niche sport yes. in many respects. But Tiger was a guy that, even if you didn't like golf, you wanted to know what Tiger Woods was up to, well,
0: right? Well, since after he became really great and famous, even now, uh, he's not playing, or maybe he'll play a little bit, but it's a only, the only question was, what's Tiger doing? When there's, no, when there's team sports, you root for the jersey, the the laundry. If it's Ohio State, or if it's the Rams, or if it's UCLA, it doesn't matter who's under that jersey, that's your guy or, or your girl. But in individual sports, you, you need a person, whether it's Tiger, Serena Williams, uh, Roger Federer, somebody like that. And Tiger just brought us all in. It got to the point where people didn't care what was going on. They just say, what's Tiger shooting?
1: Right. Well, I distinctly remember in 2005 at the British Open at St. Andrews, uh, you and myself and Marla Ridenour from the Akron Beacon Journal had dinner and talked a lot about, obviously, Tiger that night. And he goes on and wins that tournament wire to wire, won it by five strokes. He's 29 years old. That was his 10th major championship. Mm -hmm. It was Jack Nicklaus's last British Open. That's why I was there from Columbus. And there was just this real feeling that it was inevitable that the torch had been passed that Tiger, with 10 titles at 29, was going to break Nicklaus's record of 18 major championships. And then we know the story about you know, everything that happened away from the course, his injuries, his marital trouble, all the things that happened to bring him down. But when you think about it, what happened to Tiger?
0: Well, that is what happened. And also, I think the injuries, uh, the late Dan Jenkins, who, one of the great journalists of all time, writers, and mm-hmm. died a couple of years ago. In in 2000, I believe it was... Uh, after Tiger had won his third major of the year, Dan and I are standing, this is, was this, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was Valhalla, but anyway, so I said, Dan, and Dan had been covering golf since he was 15 years old, and, and this is 40 years, 50 years later, I said, Dan, what's, who's going to stop this kid? What's going to stop him? He said, the only two things that will stop him will be an injury or a bad marriage. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, he didn't really have a, he had a bad marriage, you might say as we don't know about how much, but the injuries that will stop anybody and you're swinging this golf club, he was already beat up. And you know, he did a lot of uh, we would say dumb things, but he jumped out of airplanes. He he wanted to be a trooper like his father in in the military uh and his dad um was was fantastic and and so he would he would uh extend his body and he'd he'd wrestle and he'd basically do parachuting uh, bungee jumping, things like that. well you know you you're gonna wear your body out you're gonna beat it up and so then then he all already had a bad knee and things got
1: worse. Right. I always just thought from afar that maybe he was just a geek. <laughs> maybe he was Urkel, and he was trying to prove something else by getting involved in all these other things, you know, all these macho things, parachuting and, you know, being a, hanging out with the special forces, and, you know, it's just uh, to each his own. You live your life. That's right. But it just seemed like there was something else going on there besides golf.
0: Well, he was a driven guy, and... He was also. This is this is my own theory. He was a, he was an a, an only child, and so he didn't have brothers and sisters of which he knew, and so he went out and did things, sort of to be, to be recognized and and be known. And hmm. by the way, there's a story, supposedly, when he got to kindergarten or first grade, and he was quote the only uh, person of color, only black kid, this is in in Anaheim area, Orange county, that the other kids uh, uh tied him up or beat him up or something like it, tied him up I guess well, turns out that was a phony story it was made up mm. and uh and i I believe that story until a few years ago when I heard somebody just made it up or his father or tiger didn't his father wanting you to think that way. And uh, hmm. and Earl, remember, said he's gonna be more famous than any person in history. And he mentioned Jesus Christ, he mentioned various kings, he mentioned kings <laughs> and golfers and and athletes and and statesmen and actually he's pretty famous, but not, not quite that famous.
1: Well, for a period of time, obviously he was the most famous athlete, or one of them, certainly around yes. the world, and um, and that said, he was also he was also a bit distant. He was he was not easy to get the crack through the wall, especially at press conference settings and so forth. But I will say this: you, Art Spander, or. You were one of the few writers a tiger would address by name.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I.
1: You had some type of working relationship with him. What clicked between you guys? It
0: just he just I was there and I'd ask him questions. He he knew who he was. Uh, um, I was a Bay Area guy, and he went to Stanford and all these things. And mm-hmm. um, I had people who knew him. I guess who said uh, art's okay. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the last things I I remember. Uh, maybe five years ago or so, we were at a tournament, and Tiger, here's one thing I, I found out about Tiger. He did not like people, you're talking about kissing ass before, he didn't like that, he hated, when he turned pro, they had a press conference at the LA tournament, Genesis, or the, whatever they called it then, the, uh, uh, anyway, and they had to actually have seats at the press conference, because there were so many people and you had all these Hollywood reporters. And this woman was saying, oh, Tiger, you're so what it isn't and he just cringed. He liked somebody mm. saying, hey, jerk. <laughs> and and he, I'd see him like after, after a, a tournament, he didn't want to talk to anybody else. He, he'd say a, a few uh, obscenities And then he'd say, all right, come on in here. But he just wanted to be one of the boys, I think.
1: Mm -hmm, Right. Just being treated like the other guys. Yeah. Even though, obviously, his talent was not like all the other (laughs) guys. (laughs) Well, you know, Tiger knew Art Spander by name. And Art, you knew quite a few celebrities, even outside the world of sports. When you started out at
0: UPI, didn't you cover Marilyn Monroe's funeral? Yes, I did. I did, because I was the young guy there. So the first, first year, 1960, they used to have a thing called the backbone wire. It, and, and, and here I am, the only guy in the office after 3 a.m., 3 to 6. And it's ringing, it's ringing, right. and I go over there and it says, understand Marilyn Monroe has committed suicide. This is 1960, and I don't know what to do. So I call Hank Rieger, the late uh, bureau chief, and he says, good, I'm glad you called me. This is what, so I started calling all the, all the Hollywood, Vernon Scott and Joe Finnegan, the, the Hollywood people, and turns out she was in Reno making The Misfits with Clark Gable. So I really feel like eh, you stupid, you dumb, you dumb kid. Anyway, now two years later, 62, now I'm married and uh, the phone rings on on a sunday morning and they said you better come to the office Marilyn Monroe committed suicide i said they pulled that bleep on me 2 years and i hung up and and she did so then because they put you made all all manpower everybody even though i was not knowledgeable i was young so i could climb it was the, the funeral and the and she obviously the graveyard is in, in Westwood, right near UCLA. So I knew the territory. Mm-hmm. So they had me climbing up over the walls and doing that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so, so you're, jump, you're jumping the wall to get any kind yeah, of news you many, can get any, at the funeral for Marilyn yeah, and Monroe. get
0: notes and then give them to the big shots so they could write the story. Anyway, I was a little shot. There for history,
1: <laughs> there for history. But, you know, you got to know Tiger. Tiger got to know you by name. You got to know quite a few celebrities when you think about it from covering the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Ams, which back in the day was called the Bing Crosby Clam Crosby, baby. yeah. And you would have all the old Hollywood people come out, right? Crosby, Bob yeah, Hope, yeah. Dean Martin, Jack Lemmon. Well, what, Jack You Lemon, know, yeah. had all I, kinds I, I just, of folks. no big
0: deal. I had uh, a drinks after a round with Jack Lemmon and I'm saying, God, I'm telling him how much I love uh, China Syndrome, <laughs> and he's he's looking at me a stupid sports writer. But anyway, it was it was fun. I'll tell you uh, who I liked: D. Martin. D. Martin was great, and uh, really? and guys like that. Um, and, and Bing himself, because I wrote for the Chronicle, which was the paper. Bing read it, and he knew what I was writing about his tournament, and so. Oh. Mm-hmm. I would call him just before the tournament, and he would talk to me, you know, and right, at, at his right. home in Burlingame. Okay, so you have Clint
1: Eastwood, Paul Newman, Jack Nicholson. You know, Eastwood obviously was the mayor of yeah, Carmel. Yeah, and, and Eastwood um, is
0: thing. I saw Eastwood. I was walking the fairways, let's say, seven, eight years ago. I can't do that anymore. And we were at Spyglass Hill, and he sees my media badge. And he's, you know, Art Spander, San Francisco Examiner. And he looks at it and he says, Art Spander? God, you've been around here a long time. So I said, (laughs) not as long as you. (laughs) So, (laughs) Yeah, wait a minute. Hold on, Clint.
1: (laughs) It's good. Well, Art, you, uh, you you were hanging out with all those stars up there at uh, Pebble Beach <laughs> and all these major names and personalities from sports all these years at different venues, famous places. You, and you've certainly been a star in the sports writing universe. Uh, it's been such a pleasure and honor to have you spend time with us. Thank you. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time, rock on.
0: Get ready race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews, and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of superspeedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform, or head to EvergreenPodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pickpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.